Steve, and I'm the lead pastor here for this community, and uh, want to get started um, by saying a big thank you to Ewan for leading us and teaching us last Sunday. If you were here with us, he uh, walked us through the Jonah story and the Jonah paradox, and it was a real blessing to me to be able to sit underneath uh, his teaching for, uh, for that Sunday, and um, uh, continue to be really encouraged by the team of people that we have speaking into our teaching that happens here on Sunday morning. Not just the teaching, but really all the elements, including the song that uh, that Rolly just played. So I uh, just wanted to say uh, how cool it is for me to be able to kind of take a back seat on a Sunday like last week and, and watch some of that happen. And again, really grateful for uh, for Ewan and his gift. If you did not get a uh, chance to be here last Sunday, would encourage you to go back and listen to that. It will be well worth your time. All right, I want to I want to pray and then we're going to get started here in our uh, in our next paradox uh, in just a moment. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in um, probably a lot of different places. And some of us are uh, bearing great burdens, um, different things that are going on in our life that we bring into this space. All of us probably aware at some level of what's going on in our country. In particular this morning, God, we pray for our Jewish brothers and sisters. We pray against the, the violence and the craziness that we've seen in just the last couple of days and in the last week. God, we ask desperately for your kingdom to be made real, for your shalom to invade our world, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, whether we are aware of of these big events in our world or not, again, we come in, we're holding so much stuff. We ask now that you would carry that for us for the next few moments that we would bring all that we have, just as, as we uh, sung a moment ago, that you would meet us in this place. And as we dive once again into some really deep waters, that you would make yourself more real to us, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, and that we might in some way be able to respond to what we hear, to take one step closer towards who you are asking us to be, who you are calling us to be in this world. We pray all of this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. All right, I want to begin on a, a somewhat lighter note. Um, one of the great gifts of our world, of our digital age, is that we are more connected than we have ever been at any point in history, right? And there's sort of a, a blessing that comes along with this, this ability to... to uh, uh, connect with long-lost friends and relatives to keep in touch with uh, dear folks who are hundreds or thousands of miles away from us. The ability to know what we had for brunch yesterday, okay? The, these sorts of things are the gift of our connected era, the gift of social media. And yet at the same time, our, our technology has this way of making us more awkward, or maybe it's just revealing the awkwardness that was already there. But how many of you, you don't, please don't um, raise your hand here, but how many of you have a text thread or an email thread going right now that you've been kind of putting off responding to? <laughs> and, and, and maybe it's this person 
who, who like really wants to talk to you, really wants to meet with you. You don't really want to, and so you're just kind of ignoring that thing. It's hanging there. There's a deadline that's looming, and you're just hoping that you don't see them before that deadline hits. Because then you can go back and you can say, oh, oh but I didn't see it. Sorry, um, just missed that one, right? We have a word for this now in our, in our culture. It's called ghosting. And in its less serious form, again, ghosting is where we just sort of drag our feet on communication like the scenario that I just described. In its more serious forms, though, this is how some of us end relationships. We just sort of digitally disappear from each other's lives. Psychology Today says that ghosting is the ultimate use of the silent treatment and it can actually cause profound psychological damage. Now, this is... This is kind of a, a softer way of getting into this idea, but given this reality, given, again, some of the, the cruel things we see going on in our world, this has pretty significant implications for us, particularly when it comes to how we relate to God. And for many of us, our ability to trust God is, uh, is undercut by the untrue. Look at these paradoxes and the characters that go along with it, the Moses paradox, Times where it seems like God is, is absent or not intervening the way that we would want. That was the Job paradox. Times where it appears that God is not coming through on something that he's promised to do. The Abraham paradox. And of course several other ones. But it's in these moments where all of our trust issues, our, our wounds from dealing with unpredictable and unfaithful people, they get pulled to the surface and we project them back on to God. And yet scripture says over and over again that God is faithful and consistent and unchanging. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change. God does not change like shifting shadows. Surprises. God cannot be boxed in. He's not a computer program that runs the same way every single time. In Isaiah, we read, For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Awesome things that we did not expect. This is what we're calling the Habakkuk paradox, the God who is consistently unpredictable. The God who does not change and yet still surprises us. Now remember, in this paradoxology series, in this conversation, the goal here, as we dive into some deep questions, some of the more uh, profound mysteries of our faith, the goal is not to answer every single question, but we're working on creating a space that is safe enough to voice these questions to name these paradoxes, wrestle with our doubts, bring them up and, and, and talk about them together, safe enough to do that, but then also dangerous enough to be transformed by that process. And in particular, to be transformed by the good news about Jesus. We've said this several times, I want to say it again. We want to be a church for people who are in process, not people who think they are a finished product. All right, so today we're looking at Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to pronounce it. 
I'm going to say Habakkuk because it's just easier for me, all right? So bear with me on that. If you have a Bible, the book of Habakkuk comes about three-quarters of the way through. It's in the Old Testament. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and someone will come around and make sure that you have a physical copy of the Bible, which you're also more than welcome to take home with you. Just raise your hand, and we'll get those to you. Habakkuk comes in a portion of Scripture that is known as the Minor Prophets. Now, the minor prophets are not lesser or inferior prophets, but they are called minor because of the scope of the message of the text. And usually they're, they're much shorter books than, say, a major prophet like a Jeremiah or an Isaiah. Now, when we hear the word prophet, we may have a, a number of different images that come into our mind. We might think of someone who has like a, this crystal ball that they look into or they can somehow tell and predict the future. But actually, the biblical definition of a prophet is, is pretty simple and straightforward. It's a person who is asked by God to speak a message on his behalf. Okay? A prophet is a person asked by God to speak a message on his behalf. When you read through the Old Testament prophets, many of them begin in a very similar way. And I just want to give you one example. This is from the book of Micah as a way for us to understand how this is formulated. So this is from Micah chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth and all who live in it. All right, so here's how this works, okay? Very clearly, it begins by saying the word of the Lord, okay? This is a message that God has, and he wants it relayed to his people. The very next thing, we're introduced to the prophet, Micah of Morasheth, this real human being who's going to speak on God's behalf. Then we're given the context of the time. This is, uh, we find this through the naming of the kings, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Then we're given a little bit more context for this vision. It's about Samaria and Jerusalem. And then finally, this call, listen to this. Hear this message and respond. Now, when we get to Habakkuk, the the introduction to this book signals to us that this is a very different kind of prophetic message. Look at Habakkuk 1.1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received, okay, Far less detail, right? Very straight and to the point. Much different than the typical formulation. And what happens is as we read on, we discover that this is less about a message that's going to be delivered to a group of people. And this is almost like a peek behind the curtain of how God works with prophets. Here's the structure of the book. Habakkuk will speak. He'll say something. And then God will respond. Then Habakkuk speaks a second time, God answers a second time, and then Habakkuk prays, and that's the whole thing. Okay, that's the book. Now, we do know a little bit more about Habakkuk when we see uh, some clues throughout other parts of Scripture and some scholarly work. We know that he was a prophet around the same time as Jeremiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah. Those are all also books that you'll find in the Old Testament. These four prophets were, were all on this scene for what was a very dangerous and tumultuous time. Going back a couple of generations, the kingdom of Israel experienced the season of prosperity under King David and King Solomon. 
And after King Solomon, the kingdom split into north and south, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. And then if you ever read through the history of this in the Old Testament, it, it, it gets pretty repetitive and kind of old. <laughs> it's like this king came and did all this wicked stuff, and then this other king came and did all this wicked stuff. And it's just this repeating cycle over and over again, these terrible kings leading God's people into wicked practices, uh, worshiping other gods, all kinds of heinous stuff going on. So in the midst of all that, God asks prophets to come, speak a message to people to try to get the king and the rest of the people back on track. And in only a very few circumstances does that actually happen. Most of the time, they just keep going, they keep repeating this cycle. And so God says, if you don't repent, if you do not come back to me, there are going to be very real repercussions to this. And Israel, the northern kingdom, actually faced those repercussions first. They were defeated and exiled by the Assyrian Empire. Judah, though, was still hanging on. And this is the era that we find Habakkuk and these other prophets writing in. Judah hanging on by a thread, and yet there are some pretty serious looming threats for them. And in particular, there's a new superpower called Babylon. Babylon is under, uh, ruled under a king called Nebuchadnezzar, and they are fighting with Assyria. They are starting to defeat and dismantle the Assyrian Empire, and they're starting to look beyond that to see what's next, and Judah is in their sights. So this is the bigger context for what Habakkuk is going to talk with God about. It begins like this. Again, if you have your Bible, look at Habakkuk 1 verse 2. Habakkuk says, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife. Conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Not a very relevant prayer, right? <laughs> no, it's super relevant. 3,000 years ago, Habakkuk is praying this, and it's still a prayer that many of us are praying, maybe even this weekend. How long is this going to go on? Conflict abounds. The law is paralyzed. Justice is perverted. Violence. Everywhere I look, God, when are you going to do something? This is a lament prayer. This is a protest prayer, and it kind of sounds like Habakkuk is mouthing off to God. In fact, in some of our Bibles, you may notice this, the, the heading of this section is Habakkuk's complaint. One thing that should be very clear to, to us by now at this point in our paradoxology conversation, though, is that we can speak honestly to God. We've seen this over and over again, Moses, Job, Jonah, others. God is not put off by our Emotion, our anger, our honesty, even our complaints, our laments. Scripture models over and over again the importance of dialoguing with God. Chris Kandaya writes, it is in dialogue with God that we are most likely to find answers to our questions. 
ways to worship him through the paradoxes. So the whole book of Habakkuk really is an illustration of this, the power of this dialogue. Now the main problem that Habakkuk has here that he's referring to is God's seeming inactivity in the face of unrelenting evil. Look at all the stuff that's happening within Judah. Look at all these uh, scary uh, powers that are outside of us that might come and attack us. God, what are you going to do? Look at how God responds to this. Verse 5. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. Now, pause there for a second. This is probably one of the more quoted verses from Habakkuk. It oftentimes is, is uh, quoted at like a revival or, or a youth rally, the sense of like, oh, God's going to do something in this generation that's going to be amazing. And it's just so phenomenally misquoted in that context. Look at what God says he's going to do. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. So God says the plan is actually to use this Babylonian superpower. Which would have been totally shocking to Habakkuk. This is not what he would have wanted to hear at all. Here we encounter the surprising nature of God. He's not going to answer Habakkuk's lament, his prayer with a nice season of blessing. Nope, God says there's going to be judgment through a pagan superpower. Imagine praying for revival in our country and God saying, no, actually, I'm going to send Canada to punish you. I'm glad you guys laughed at that because, you know, Canada. But, but this was actually quite serious, okay? This was totally wrong. How could God do this? Habakkuk, this is not what I want. Not only is it not what I want, this is, this is offensive in a lot of ways. And it forces us to ask some of these really hard questions. What do we do when God doesn't work the way that we want him to? How can we depend on a God who seems to continually confound our expectations? And if this paradox is true, if God is consistently unpredictable, how are we supposed to live lives of worshipful trust in him? Now, over the last couple of decades, our world has seen a, a large number of disruptive moments. The economist Nassim Taleb talks about these as black swan events. These are unlikely events, rare events, paradigm-shifting events that can cause tremendous pressure on economies and governments. Think about 9-11. Think about the rise of social media. Think about the 2008 financial crisis. Afterwards, it can be relatively easy to look at some of these things and say, oh, man, we really should have seen that coming. And, and I, in particular, I think about the financial crisis, right? How many books and movies have been made about that where it just seems so obvious that we should have seen this thing happening? But in the moment, they, they feel like they've come out of nowhere. And so Taleb talks about, he coins the phrase, anti-fragile economies, 
to talk about the task of building resilience into our economic systems so that they're better able to withstand these kinds of unforeseeable events. I love that phrase, anti-fragile. The gift of the Habakkuk paradox is here we have an opportunity to sit with this question. What does it look like to develop an anti-fragile faith? Is that even possible? A resilient faith that can move through the ups and downs of life, the inconsistencies of the people in our lives, the silence of God, the tragedies of our fallen humanity. Is an anti-fragile faith even possible? And I think Habakkuk has a couple of clues for us. Each of these clues has to do with time. So first, let's think about the future. One of our problems as limited finite beings is that we don't know what's going to happen next, which is a bit of an understatement, right? (laughs) We don't know what's going to happen next. So let's think about this for a moment from the perspective of movies. Consider this uh, screen grab from uh, Finding Nemo, okay? If you had never seen this movie... And you had no idea what the story was about. And I said, okay, this is a clip from a movie or a picture from a movie. I want you to tell me what you think happens next in this movie. All right? How do you think you would answer that question? You might think, ooh, this is a scary movie. This is a movie that's preying on our fears of the ocean and of sharks. And that clownfish is going to get it. Right? That's what we might think because of our limited perspective of what's going on in that moment. If you didn't know the story, you'd be surprised to find out that this shark is named Bruce. And he's actually, he's in recovery. He's in a recovery group. And he's trying to get over this habit of eating fish. And he's working through his daddy issues. And he's actually this very sympathetic character. What about this? This next one, okay? Uh, my kids, for some reason, are obsessed with Star Wars. They have not seen the movies at all, but they, they are, like, fascinated by this. If this was all you knew about Star Wars, you would think that poor character is, is done. Like, his story is over at this point, right? And yet we all know, if we've seen Star Wars, we know there's so much more to what's going on in that scene than what that picture tells us. In the moment, we can jump to a conclusion about the story and how things will progress based on our impression of that moment. So what do we need to do to better understand these movies? We need to kind of wait and see what happens next. How does this thing unfold? This is one of the answers that Habakkuk gives us. Again, Habakkuk Offers a lament, God responds, and there's a second lament. And in God's second response, here's what he says. Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And what God does in the next several verses is he makes it clear that there's way more to this story than Babylon. Because at some point, God is going to judge them. God is going to overcome them, and he's going to overcome the next empire after them, and the one after that, and the one after that. Now, this waiting is not, is not about sort of sugarcoating the circumstances for Habakkuk. 
Now, this is not, oh, just sit on the beach and, and drink a pina colada and just kind of wait for all the craziness to pass. This waiting is active and courageous. And God is saying, you need to be a little bit patient because you got to wait and see how this is all going to work together for my larger purpose. Waiting is a spiritual discipline. It is a counter-cultural discipline. It is a challenge that we are given all throughout Scripture. In the Psalms, we read this, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. Again, this is not just a sort of passive uh, twiddling your thumbs to see what's going on. My whole being waits. In his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than a watchman waits for the morning. This is active. This is courageous. This is eyes wide open, paying attention. What are you doing, God? What are you up to? Waiting, though, is so lame in our world of immediacy, right? We, we want it now. We want results now, growth now, justice now, answers now. But sometimes God says, wait. Wait. Amy and I are blessed with two beautiful kids, but we actually lost our first pregnancy. And one of the residual tragedies of that is that it makes the next pregnancy fraught with peril. And every sort of moment along the lines there is, uh, you know, every doctor visit, all that stuff, it's just like, oh, is this going to be the moment where my heart gets ripped out again? What waiting does, like the psalmist says, is it, it reveals our hope. What are we really putting our hope in? Impatience is misplaced hope. Those nine months of pregnancy with both Marina and Cruz were agonizing at times, partly because we had to confront this. What are we really hoping in? But the Habakkuk paradox, it teaches us that sometimes the most courageous action we can take is to wait and see what happens next. Now, one reason we are able to wait courageously is because of what God has done in the past. So we wait and hope in the future, but we also remember what God has done before. In this, uh, in this dialogue, this book ends with Habakkuk sort of singing a prayer. Chapter 3 is this worshipful prayer song. And at the very beginning of it, he says this, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, what you've already done. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. And then in the next several verses, Habakkuk just lists the ways that God has worked in the past. He remembers. This ability to look back, to remember, it reminds us of God's character and power. Habakkuk remembers that God is in control of powers and empires that he has done amazing things for his people before and that he can do them again. A lot of different ways that we can exercise this discipline of remembering. One of them is to look at Scripture. This is why we open Scripture every Sunday, why we uh, look at Scripture in our discovery groups during the week. It's to be reminded of what God has done, to be formed, to be influenced by the big story of Scripture 
Because the more we are formed by that story, the less we are swayed by what's going on in the moment. But it's also important to remember the ways that God has worked in our lives in particular. During all three of our pregnancies, I was working in campus ministry, and that position was a fundraised position, kind of like a missionary, which means that our finances were less than robust. But one thing, actually we learned a lot of things from fundraising, but one of the main things that we learned from that is that God always took care of us. And sometimes it was in very miraculous ways that we we didn't see coming, that we could never have imagined on our own. And so in those moments of terrified waiting, it was good to be able to point out to one another, look, God has taken care of us. He has blessed us. And will we allow him to do that again? Will we trust that he can do it again? That's the power of remembering. Now, this leads us to the question, then, how do we handle the present moment? Because it's the present moment that really reveals what's going on in our hearts. And our ability to live in this paradox between what God has done and what he will do. Walter Brueggemann, one of the great Old Testament scholars of our age, describes a repeated pattern in the lives of characters who develop an anti-fragile faith. He talks about this process as orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And I actually want us to think about this process through the lens of a New Testament character, a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, in fact, one of Jesus' closest friends, while Jesus was here on earth. So the first part of this cycle is orientation. Peter, when he meets Jesus, is actually named Simon, and he's fishing for fish. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to make you a fisher of men, and I'm going to give you a new name. You're now Peter. This orientation to a new name, a new life, a new calling. And then there's kind of this honeymoon phase where Peter gets to see Jesus do miracles and heal people, and he's, he's teaching these amazing things, but then comes disorientation. Jesus starts talking about how he's going to have to die. And Peter, in particular, is not excited about this part of the plan. He says, no, I will never let that happen to you. Later, Jesus says, Peter, when I die... When I'm on trial, you are going to deny me, not just one time, but three times. And again, Peter's like, no way, that would never happen. And of course, all of this happens. And Peter is is devastated, he's heartbroken, and in fact, he goes back to fishing for fish. Disorientation. Many of us get stuck here. Irwin McManus writes, this is one of my favorite quotes, There are two kinds of uninteresting people. There are those who have not suffered, and there are those who are trapped in their pain. Suffering is all they know. They wallow in despair. They are all wounds and no scars. All wounds and no scars. In other words, there are some of us who are in perpetual orientation, and then there are others of us who get stuck in disorientation. And I do not want to make light of this. This is a difficult moment. This is a painful moment, and it's not something that you kind of just skate through and come out the other side and everything is all rosy 
and great. There are scars on the other side of this. But this is a point where so many of us, we, we give up, we turn back, we say this is too hard, we're not down with the surprising nature of God. But to develop an anti-fragile faith, we have to go that final step because there is an opportunity for reorientation. And by the way, this is a process that may repeat many times in your life, and that's fine. Reorientation. There is a possibility of something emerging, something new emerging out of that disorientation. Sheryl Sandberg is the COO of a little startup company in Silicon Valley called Facebook. Maybe you've heard of it. On a more serious note, her husband passed away quite suddenly and tragically when they were on vacation a few years ago. She's been very public about this, about this grieving process that she's been on, this massive disorientation moment in her life. This process has led her to discover a term that she's helped to popularize, post-traumatic growth. We've done some good work in our society identifying, naming, helping people with post-traumatic stress. But she says on the other side of that, there's the opportunity for post-traumatic growth. What she's talking about there is reorientation. Scars that tell a story, a resurrection moment. In John chapter 21, Peter has this profound and intimate encounter with Jesus. Jesus restores him to relationship, reminds him of the great task that he's been given. It's just one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. My favorite moment, though, actually comes right before that. Peter and the guys, again, they've gone back to fishing for fish. And they're in this boat and they see Jesus on the shore. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. Now you might think, this is a guy who had very recently betrayed Jesus, done the very thing that Jesus told him he was going to do. You might think that he would hide in the boat or like duck down or, or be like, man, I hope he doesn't notice me over here fishing for fish, but what does he do? He leaps out of the boat and he swims to shore. He cannot get to Jesus fast enough. Desperate for reorientation. Habakkuk ends like this. This is how we live in the moment. This is what an anti-fragile faith looks like. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. An anti-fragile faith that looks like waiting Hoping looks like remembering. It looks like wounds that have become scars. It looks like post-traumatic growth. It is a resurrection. It looks like Peter jumping into that lake and, and swimming to shore because he cannot get back to his resurrected friend fast enough. An anti-fragile faith is a faith that grows through the ups and downs in life that holds this tension between 
the unchanging, faithful nature of God and the ways that he surprises us. It is a faith that remembers what God has done in the past, hopes for what God will do in the future. It rejoices in the Lord in the present, even if everything is going wrong. Yet I will rejoice. Now to close, I want us to do some introspection here. And just be brutally honest. Where are you in that? Are you in orientation, disorientation, or reorientation? Nothing wrong with being in any of those particular stages. But you've got to be honest about where you are. Again, what Habakkuk shows, what Peter shows, what all of these characters we've been looking at show is we can be honest with God about where we are. My prayer for you, though, my my hope is that there is movement towards reorientation. It may not come today. It may not even come tomorrow. It may not come for a while, but hopefully it will come for you. Now, we're going to close our time together here with communion and worship. Communion is, is so important to our community. We do it every Sunday when we gather in this space because it is a reorientation moment. It's a reminder of what God has done for us in the past. Jesus commands us to do this every time we gather, to remember what his death and resurrection mean. To remember that God has overcome our sin and the separation that that sin causes so that we can be in right relationship with him, that we can experience life, that we can experience eternal life. We remember what God has done through Jesus. But Jesus also tells us to eat this meal until he comes back which is another way of saying keep waiting, keep hoping. The end is coming and it is good. So we're going to close again with with, with singing and taking communion together when you're ready. Uh, The band's going to come back as I pray and as they uh, just sort of uh, play quietly for a few moments. Take that time to think about where you're at in that process and to dialogue with God about what it looks like to move through that. Again, not that the goal is to get it over with, but to be honest about naming where we are so that we can take steps towards reorientation, resurrection. So as we do this together, living in this present broken moment, let's remember what God has done, hope in what God will do in the future, and say whatever our circumstances are, we will rejoice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we, we come to a, a part of Scripture, a, a story, this dialogue between Habakkuk and yourself that is so relevant to this moment right now where it really does look like things, every, everything is falling apart. The lack of justice, the violence, all the things that Habakkuk describes, God, very real in our present moment here. Plus, again, the things that we carry with us and are moving through in our own lives. And so it can be very challenging to say what Habakkuk says, that even if everything seems to be going wrong, we will rejoice. Yeah, this is the invitation to an anti-fragile faith, a faith that actually grows as we move through the ups and downs, as we move through 
the, the hurts that we receive from people in our life. Those wounds can become scars. Those deaths can become new life. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who have, who have maybe never responded to the good news of Jesus, that there is possibility for relationship with you, that they would have an opportunity today to step into that. I pray for those who are here this morning who are in a disorientation, God, that you would be tender to them, you would speak to them, you would help them to see that there is possibility to move beyond that, for something new to come out of that moment. Again, God, for all of us, I pray that we can be honest in this moment, that we can have a dialogue with you, that we can take a a step towards this anti-fragile faith. Help us to be like Peter, leaping out of that boat just to be closer to you. God, whatever that looks like in our lives this morning, give us the courage to respond in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.